Let Him Go Barefoot is a podcast that dives into all things parenting and education through the lens of mindful awareness. Conversations aim to bring forward patterns, beliefs, and attitudes that shape our expectations and ideas about what it means to raise healthy children. With the blend of science, ancient wisdom, and intuition, we will explore ways to support, nurture, and connect with our growing children while also nurturing and expanding ourselves. I am grateful you are here. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode eight of the Let Em Go Barefoot podcast. Well, barefoot weather is finally upon us here in the Queen City. I'm recording this introduction on April 8th, 2022, looking outside my bedroom window at the gorgeous day awaiting me listening to the chirping birds, a mower in the distance, and there's dogs barking. As I check in on my state of being in this moment, I feel happy, light, and at peace. Putting together these episodes is an activity that truly brings me joy. And for the next hour, I believe you will feel joy as you listen to my next guest, Isabel Robledo talk about her life experiences and her passion for helping others get to know themselves better. When Isabel reached out to me about coming on the show, I did not think twice. I follow her on Instagram and love the content she shares. Plus, it is wonderful to watch how self-directed education plays out in the later teen years. Isabel beams with enthusiasm for life and excitement for the work she does. It is impossible, I think, not to be positively affected by her and swept up in her orbit. We talk about what mindfulness is, what it is not, and how it can benefit us all. We dig into Enneagrams and how they can be used to support and guide us on our journey. She even guesses my number, which completely cracked me up. (laughs) But as an update to the story, I took a second Enneagram quiz from a different site this week. So it's been several weeks now since I talked to her and I got a different number of five. So I think this speaks to what she says about reading through the graphics that she created and shares on her site so that you can type yourself more accurately. If you're like me and enjoy getting into the nitty gritty of our personalities and exploring what makes us tick, I think you're really going to love this chat. Here is my conversation with Isabel Robledo, the creator of Making Mindfulness Fun. Hello, my name is Isabel Robledo. I'm 18 years old and I'm a blogger, YouTuber, and coach. I teach people to understand who they are using astrology, Enneagram, and the MBTI. Specifically, the Enneagram and natal charts right now are my specialty. Now, the reason I got into this work is all goes back uh, to seven years ago when my family of seven and I decided to ditch conformity and move into a 30-foot Class C. For us, we seem to want something different out of life. My mom, we lived by the in this beachfront house. My mom decided that this is just not what I want. I rarely see my kids. I want to be outdoors. So we just decided to sell our couch, sell all the useless paintings on the wall, sell all the things we didn't use, and move into a small RV so that we could travel the world, be closer, and experience life more. And so for seven years, I've been traveling the world full time in an RV that is extremely small. If you can't picture 30 feet, it's about the size of probably your average kitchen with seven people. And I've been traveling the world in search of surfing, hiking, 
rock climbing, mountain biking, any epic adventures that we could find because that is what we loved. We valued adventure. And we spent seven years chasing this and not doing the normal schooling, not even doing homeschooling because I grew up homeschooled my entire life. But slowly as I started traveling the world more, uh, my schooling, uh, homeschooling became more and more unschooling. And I was given more free reign. My mom gave me one rule, which is Just pursue something you're passionate about. And that advice stuck with me for the rest of my life and it continues to. So at the time through my travels, at first my passions and interests were just maybe drawing, reading, which were okay. And then one day I was sitting in New Zealand overlooking this beautiful beach in this Airbnb and I see this thing called the MBTI, known as the Myers-Briggs Type Indicator. And it was this personality typing system that told me all about who I was, why I acted the way I did. And I did mistype for the first part, but I was just so intrigued by this whole area of psychology that I never thought to look into before. And I thought, wow, there's a reason for why people are the way they are. There's a reason for why I am the way they are. There's 16 types. For me, it was just such a clear way of looking at the world as someone who just wanted to understand it all. And so that started my whole discovery of psychology and looking into personality typing. And a couple of years later, when I was 15, I discovered the Enneagram. And I thought the Myers-Briggs was cool, but then I discovered the Enneagram and I was even more mind blown and a little hurt because I discovered (laughs) that I was the type nine and it really brought out a lot of those inner wounds. Um, And then later I discovered uh, the natal chart a few years later and it was uh, a bit overwhelming to say the least with 10 pages worth of information about myself based on the stars. But then I rediscovered it and re-looked into it a few years later and I was mind blown yet again at the depth of my being. So I really became interested in psychology through my years of travels and not only psychology, but I was learning to be mindful at the same time because living an unschooled lifestyle, traveling the world, sitting on the beach in Portugal and then go climbing the mountains in Spain and then going to the surf, seeing surf in France, it really makes it so that you can't see the world as something that's just black and white and simple. You become aware of everything going on around you. So I became aware of this sense of mindfulness for the world and awareness for myself. As I learned about typology and was traveling the world at the same time, I just brought so much awareness to my being. I was like, wow, look at this beautiful ocean that is just unlike anything I've ever seen. I didn't know this could exist. I was just unaware of this its existence and it brought me so much. And then I'd be climbing the rock faces in Spain thinking, I'm going to die. I'm going to fall a hundred feet. And I noticed that thought and thought, oh, well, what's that? And then became my mindfulness practice. I became mindful everywhere I went. Really just because I got to live this unschooling lifestyle, it made it so I could go into those thoughts. And I became aware of a world that has now become my life. Because after I learned all about this psychology and became aware of mindfulness, when it became my passion to pursue these things, to understand myself when self-growth became important for me, It was 2020 when I decided that I needed to share it with others because in case you guys didn't notice, 2020 was a little bit of a weird year. (laughs) Just a little. Just a little. (laughs) And we were seeing specifically, um, I was already unschooled and or homeschooled. And so I didn't experience this. I was already doing stuff online and learning online and detached from people. But a lot of kids were suffering or having a lot of trouble with online schooling. And so Mm -hmm. my mom said to me, you should run a kid's mindfulness course. And I was like, what? I'm not a teacher. I can't do that. But still, a few months later, I saw myself 
uh, on my first call talking to kids about mindfulness, and it went great. I ran a whole course for kids at 16 about how to become self-aware and how to be mindful so that they can feel better every day and deal with the struggles of working online. And that's from then on, I just kept that as my business for my entire life. All Every day I've spent building my brand, making mindfulness fun to teach kids, teach teens, and teach everyone of all ages, families, kids, uh, partners, people in relationships, uh, how to be mindful and how to understand themselves using personality typing. Because once we understand this about ourselves, then everything else in life falls into place easily. Once we have the awareness, we can't go through living life any longer without being aware. And so Mm. that's what I do now. I run my brand, Making Mindfulness Fun, where I teach on YouTube and through blogs all about the Enneagram, about astrology, and I do one-on-one coaching for this as well. Okay. Goodness, girl. You have been a busy, busy person. (laughs) And I I hear it's when I hear you talking about how you found the Myers-Briggs, I kind of giggled to myself because it makes me think about when I was younger, I had magazines, teen magazine to be exact. And within those magazines, there would always be these personality quizzes. Who are you? What kind of person are you? You know? And so now my daughter, who is 15, and my son, who's who's now 19, but when he was younger, he would take these different tests online as well. And I think all of us are built to know ourselves more and better. And you would think it would be just so natural. We, we are living in these bodies. We have these minds that we carry around. We are interacting in the world and we think that we know ourselves. But sometimes we are very unconscious about the way that we behave and the way we feel. And Mm -hmm. we don't even understand why we may react the way we do to certain circumstances or situations or people. And what I know from my personal experience, but I would love for you to go into and explain more from your perspective and what you've had experience with is what is mindfulness? What is the, what does it mean? How, um, how is it beneficial to the individual and then how can it be beneficial to the collective? Right. So good question because uh, mindfulness is like become the word that you see on the front of yoga journal or magazines in Walmart. And it's become very misunderstood in that sense because they're on the right track. But I think what ends up uh, being overwhelming for people when they try to become mindful is that they're not seeing the big picture of what they're doing. And so The reason that I discovered mindfulness, like I said, was because I was traveling the world. It gave me the grand, big scheme scope of what mindfulness is. And mindfulness at its core, by definition, is the state or quality of being mindful. What does that exactly mean, though? All mindfulness is, is practicing awareness, becoming aware of what is happening both outside of you and what is happening internally. That's all it is. It's all about becoming aware, like the word common sense or um, consciousness or being conscious or self-conscious. It's all awareness. It's all a form of being mindful in the end. The goal of mindfulness is to become aware. And what? why is this important? Why, why do we need to be aware? Well, for one, by becoming aware, mindful of the external, Time slows down, we become more appreciative, and we become more grateful. And I experienced that in my travels because there were, we did not travel in luxury at all. And I would be, um, like the electricity, we never had running electricity in our RV. 
And uh, we broke the pipelines also in our RV. So we had no running water. Oh and we have to, any, and if you're familiar with RVs, you have to dump all of your waste at some point. So, and then we also didn't have, um, like, we didn't have any running appliances at all. I mean, not even like our own space or comfort. So we didn't get showers most nights. We didn't get laundry. The point is we didn't have comfort and it would be very, very uncomfortable some days, of course. Like who wouldn't be uncomfortable in that? And mindfulness is what helped me become aware um, and stay grateful in that moment. Because while I didn't have running water or electricity, I could have been just so annoyed that my phone wasn't charged. So I couldn't take selfies and go on Snapchat. But instead I was realizing, oh my gosh. I'm sitting in Alaska right now overlooking this beautiful lake and there's mountains higher than I can even imagine. I'm experiencing cold weather for the first time. This is incredible. So mindfulness was the key there. It taught me to be aware of what was happening around me and look at the positive. And that really made me a more grateful person. And it also made me more aware of the opportunities I have that other people don't, which in turn made me more motivated. When I went to Bali, I was so shocked that some people didn't have the privileges or the opportunities or the comforts that we have here in the States. And so I really was a wake up call for me to be like, okay, I have opportunities others will never have. So I need to make the most of it and I need to do something with it. it mindfulness really in the external taught me so much about making me a better person, making me feel better, making me more grateful and making me more motivated. But on the other hand, the part that is often overlooked of mindfulness is the internal mindfulness. Because if you look in magazines often, it's great that we're catching on to this, but there's a whole area that we're missing where if you go see a magazine in a store, it'll talk about mindfulness and it'll tell you to notice what you can see. What can you hear? What can you smell? What can you uh, what can you see what that is red? And so it's trying to get you to pay attention to the external. And that is great. But we don't realize as a society that our entire perception of reality, everything we see, everything we think is controlled by our internal perception. It's controlled by our mind. So our life is only as good as we think it's good. Our life is only as bad as we think it's bad. Everything that we experience is made within us first. It is controlled by our mind. So we can practice mindfulness and be aware of everything around you, but eventually we have to learn to go within and notice our thoughts. And that's what the whole self-development part's all about, becoming mindful of your feelings, becoming mindful of your thoughts, becoming mindful of your thought patterns. There's so many ways that you can go deep into this and the levels of self-awareness will never end, which is why it's a way of being because mindfulness too is often seems like something that we practice in short amounts and then uh, we do finish with. And that's why what people end up doing, I notice when they try to get into mindfulness, they try to go all out and do all the practices, meditate, yoga, and they get burnt out because it's hard to be mindful. It's hard to be self-aware all the time. It's hard to be constantly vigilant of everything going on. And so they end up burning out. And so, but the point of mindfulness is that we're bringing it to our way of being. Mindfulness is a state of being mm -hmm. that makes us more aware of everything going on. And by having that, we take away all of the fog and all of the, the skewed perceptions and false beliefs that are controlling our reality. And we see things for as they truly are. So mm. that is the point of mindfulness. That is what mindfulness is. It's all just awareness. And in turn, it shifts your entire life. It is a way of being. 
Great. And and I will say, I will add on to that, that I know it's about non-judgment too and equanimity. So mm-hmm. it's about when your thoughts come, it's not in order for you to analyze your thoughts or to um, try to figure out exactly where they're coming or if they're good or bad or naming them in that way. It's more, oh, that thought popped up. What is that about? It's about being curious. Mm-hmm. And that that piece of mindfulness, like you were saying, the, it's almost like when things become trendy or a lot of people start talking about something s- similarly, it it becomes almost watered down a bit because people want to participate in it, but they don't necessarily want to invest in it. And mm-hmm. if you invest in mindfulness, it requires some energy on your part, right? Like you have yeah. to except that part of being mindfulness is also looking within, like you were saying. Um, And I do appreciate that you've made that distinction because while the external is important because we're constantly being flooded with external stimulus, that the way that we handle that external stimulus is all within ourselves. And the fact that you were able to start this program with I'm assuming it's teenagers. So I was going to ask you to elaborate a little bit on that class or the first course that you did during the pandemic and maybe how some of the things you were able to share with those who participated can then be um, spread out even and utilized today for anybody who's listening. What are some ways that we can take the stressful experiences that are happening externally that a lot of us are going through together similarly? that we can not take it personally as much as possible and try to make the best of it despite it being difficult. Yeah, sure. So everyone's in the end going through the same thing. You're so right how it's so overwhelming to look at the outside world. And that's why it's important that we go within because it's the only way that we can really find how to deal with it. I mean, every there's so much chaos. And so you can keep being aware of mindful of what's happening outside of you, but going within is what ends up being the help. So that course that I ran back in 2020 was actually for kids, I think, age eight to 13. Mm-hmm. Um, I tried running a teens class uh, the next year, but I didn't get much um, interest. I think that's mainly because there's a stigma um, now, because mindfulness has become so generalized, it seems like something that's not going to help them. And teens really who are suffering want real help. And it's it could have been any other reason. But that class was for kids specifically, not so much for teens. But the practices that I taught them were the same things that I teach to adults. They're the same things I teach to people of all ages, because it's all what we have to be doing in the end. Um, after all, my business is called Making Mindfulness Fun. And that is the point behind this course was not to make it so that kids are sitting still. Kids don't want to sit still and say, okay, you have to be quiet now and you're going to notice your thoughts and we're going to sit here for Mm -hmm. 10 minutes and then we're going to chant. You're going to love it. So (laughs) kids want to have fun. And so mindfulness too, mindfulness isn't just meditation. Mindfulness is not just yoga. Mindfulness is not breath breath work. Mindfulness is not journaling. Mindfulness Mm -hmm. is not one thing. And that's another stigma around mindfulness that I see often is that, oh, well, if I want to be mindful, I have to journal. Um, No, actually you don't Mm -hmm. because mindfulness is just awareness. So in this course, what I had done with kids was I was taking all the things that I would do on a normal basis and things that I grew up doing 
um, in bringing, helping them practice awareness through it. So for like the first class, one of my favorite things to do is a hot cocoa meditation because what child doesn't love hot chocolate? All oh, you have you to do is in my language. That is, yes, that's so amazing. <laughs> and I still do this one now. Like it's a perfect <laughs> practice and it's so simple. And uh, as much as meditation isn't the only way to practice mindfulness, I think it's really important for kids to do because if they can learn to practice sitting in stillness and um, abstaining from any stimulus, it's really powerful for them. You're giving them a really strong life tool. So mm -hmm. this is a hot chocolate meditation. All you do is you, I would have them hold a hot chocolate first class and they were all kind of hesitant at first. You could feel they were a little antsy. They didn't want to be there. Some kids were a little calmer, I will admit. Some more introverted kids were happy to be there. But some kids were just running crazy. And I was like, okay, just hold your hot chocolate. Who wants to drink their hot chocolate, guys? Like, let's sit down. Let's do this. Now, before you drink it, I'm challenging you. I want you to notice the smells. I'm challenging you to notice the smells. Mm -hmm. Yeah? Now, what can you feel in your mug? Is it hot? Is it cold? What is the textures? Now take a sip. What can you taste? Now I challenge you to not take a huge sip. Can you take a small sip? And that is the simplest form of mindfulness for kids. After that, they were so much calmer after and they were happy. They didn't feel antsy. They enjoyed the practice because it was a way of making it fun. And so for the rest of the course, I was doing mini meditations like that. Some were um, gratitude meditations where I'd have them think of things they're grateful for. Some were anger meditations where I'd make them do movements um, to release anger with heavy breathing and uh, moving their fists. There was also a lot of those things outside of meditation. Um, there was some yoga because movement is so important for kids and that would be in mm -hmm. small bursts. And most importantly, though, I would always create a creative mindfulness activity for them. So there are some days it'd be a gratitude tree where they cut out uh, leaves and they write the things they're grateful for. Some days it would be that they have to walk around the room holding a balloon and make sure it doesn't seal because it teaches them how they repress things. So it was all the whole course was teaching them how to make mindfulness part of their everyday life. Mm -hmm. And also giving them free reign to express themselves. So slowly as we got more comfortable in the class, kids would talk more. I had one child who was deathly shy at first. Aww. And at the end, she was saying, I think I noticed how when he did this meditation, I was really repressing a lot of anger oh that I was gosh. using as like uh, it was defending me, though, from my brother who makes me feel really hurt in the end. I was just mind blown because wow. these kids are learning a lot through these simple practices. And that's all we have to do. So in the end, the course was about just mini meditations, yoga and creative exercises. Well, and it's very powerful language because we forget that our children don't have the tools necessary to express themselves until they have time to have those feelings, have those emotions and have modeling behavior, you know, mm -hmm. and, and there's plenty of adults who are raising children who were never modeled those behaviors either. And they're still working through their emotions and trying to recognize how they feel and why they feel mm -hmm. a certain way. And so when you're able to give language to children as early as you were able to, it's a very powerful, empowering thing. And I, I've seen it in my own children because of the, the way that I work with them through their emotions and experiences. And over the years, because I've been in, I've been a, a teacher in a public school and a private school, I've worked in preschools. So I've been with children and worked with children for, you know, a couple of decades, multiple decades. And that is 
for me, for sure, one of the one of the most powerful things is when you are able to teach them how to recognize how they're feeling and then how to express it, but also to own their feelings mm-hmm. and not to necessarily say that it's someone else's somebody else is giving them that feeling. It's more like I'm having an emotional experience and it's rising up in me. This is how it feels. I'm noticing and and now you can start working towards a resolution if it's necessary. And right. that's that's very powerful. Um and it translates well to families and to um people of all ages and there's plenty that parents can pick up from from this language as, as well when they're working with their own children, instead of blaming or having the shame that's attached to feelings, it's more of a, I'm noticing when this situation takes place, you, you get very upset, or I see you get angry when blah, blah, blah. And then that way, everybody can kind of take a breath and say, yeah, you're right. So let's figure out how we can work through this in order for you to get to where you need to be successfully and with comfort and feeling safe and all those different pieces that help us um, coexist more peacefully. Right. And like in the end, we are as human beings, what makes us human is our emotions, I feel like. And it's when we go to practice mindfulness, we can get caught up in the thoughts, but really in the end, we're trying to consolidate and heal the emotions. We are emotional beings. And so in the end, whatever you're trying to do with mindfulness, all we're trying to do is heal that emotion. And it's hard yet. You're so right with the kids is that we're not taught to feel emotions and then let them go. And mm-hmm. more and more as mindfulness is rising, as especially the mental health industry for teens I see a lot, is that we've gone so long with repressing emotions entirely that now feeling emotions at all is this new thing that we feel we should do. And it is good to feel emotions for sure. Don't get me wrong. But now there's this, um, my sister calls it um, the I'm broken black hole we might get sucked Mm. into that we have to also be mindful of where we teach kids or teens that like, oh, if you feel bad, you deserve to feel bad. You should feel bad. Let yourself Mm -hmm. feel bad, which is partially good. There's a time and place, like I say, to to feel bad. When you're down, you can feel down. But then we have to learn to feel emotions. And then we have to learn equally as important to let them go. So that's Mm -hmm. an important part of like teaching kids mindfulness is learning that you are not your emotions. Your Mm -hmm. emotions are a important part of you. So feel them. Tell me what you're feeling or express what you're feeling, whether it's anger or joy or sadness. Now, how can we heal this and how can we let it go? Because Mm -hmm. you don't need to hold on to it. I think that is such an important point to make because we are living in a time of this extreme connectivity and the ability to share our opinions and feelings and emotions in a nanosecond. And that allows for a lot of things to come out that might not might have been better if they just took a breath and said, let me not say anything for a few minutes. My emotions are high, but are they accurate? Right? Like there's a difference. And I think people, when you spend too many, too much time saying, speak everything, feel everything, talk about everything you're not discerning the difference between something being helpful and something being hurtful. And I don't mean hurtful necessarily to another person. I mean, hurtful to yourself. Right. Um, And so the idea that we need to 
be able to work through our emotions is absolutely important, but it you don't need to let your emotions run you. And I do feel like your sister's right. There, there is a there is a a place where it's like to be in that space of hurt and pain and victimhood is where I want to stay because I'm I'm feeling I'm getting something from it, but I'm not moving forward. So it's moving through your emotions versus sitting in them. Right. You have and to think what, of it like a river, right? Like you're mm-hmm. letting the river flow through you. Mm-hmm. Well, so we've been talking about being aware of our emotions and how mindfulness helps. And I do, I do want to talk about this piece a little bit because this, this, um, the idea that in order to be mindful, I'm going to push back a little bit on the idea that everybody can do it. And I, and the reason is for this one point is that when you are in what I consider the fight, flight or freeze, you're, there's trauma or there's some sort of intense situation unfolding. Sometimes it, mindfulness is like what you do when you're maybe more calm. So are you, have you found or have you heard or do you think that people can pull in some tools of mindfulness in those situations? Or do you feel like maybe those situations are a little too intense and maybe you have to pay attention to that, those survival instincts first and then later look at it in a more mindful way? This is a really good question. So we are naturally, I get what you're saying about the whole fight or flight. Are we supposed to, if we're being chased by a mountain lion, be like, okay, notice my breath. Yeah. Um, that's So the answer to that shortly is no. So there's a time for rest and there's a time for fight or flight. So f- for example, well, we have a parasympathetic and a sympathetic uh, nervous system. Mm-hmm. The parasympathetic is our non-stress state. It is what we do when we want to calm down, digest, and rest. And then we have the sympathetic nervous state, which is all about our stress. It's our fight or flight. And it, it come, both come in handy. One keeps us uh, rested. One keeps us safe. And there is a place for the sympathetic nervous system. We all need to get stressed at some point. Stress is not bad. Every day I'm actually either, I'm either doing an intense workout, I'm going snowboarding where I'm having to make sure I'm not running any risks of being hurt. I'm going rock climbing and making sure that no rocks are going to fall out and that I'm not going to hit the ground. I'm going hiking on sheer cliffs. There's a place for that stress and there's a healthy version. But as a society, we've gotten taught to stay in that stress state. We're Mm -hmm. taught that stress is good. Hustling is good. Being in the grind is good. And we don't even notice that we're stressed because stress, uh, being stressed isn't always rubbing hands, running from one place to another. It's the absence of relaxation. Mm -hmm. And we don't even notice that we're so stressed so often. And as far as um, like, is there a place? So we end up getting caught up in this stress and you don't need to be mindful while you're in the stress states, but you do have to come back to it. And what ends up catching people from coming back to it is often we all have trauma. And um, I know this very well. I know many people who have trauma. I mean, after all, um, it's a fact that the brain stores trauma all the same, no matter how big or how small. So in theory, everyone has trauma. 
Now, that doesn't mean that people who have worse trauma uh, is invalidated or people who have small trauma are suddenly really hurt. It just means that it's something we all deal with. It's like a crystallization in us that uh, that creates um, a strength in us. It creates something that's protective. It's a protective spot. Point is that we all get, some of us uh, worse than others get trauma at some point. And this can keep us from getting back into that parasympathetic calm state because we believe we are still in danger. And this is where mindfulness can come in handy because there is some parts where if you're in that, literally in that moment, you probably need the stress state. You need your sympathetic. But in order to heal the trauma, in order to get out of it, we all need to get back out of stress and we need mindfulness. So it is going to be harder for some people for sure to get back into that mindful state because once you have a trigger like that, it's going to be hard to tell yourself that you're safe, that you can calm down, that you deserve rest. And But if we can do this, this is how we heal it because we become aware of our surroundings, how we are safe, and we become aware internally of the beliefs that stack. And in the end, um, for dealing with uh, if the question of uh, what about for trauma, is, is mindfulness still the answer? Is there not a place for it? It comes back to Enneagram. Because each Enneagram type, which I'll explain later, is has a core programming. Each type has uh, a childhood programming, belief, and quote-unquote trauma that created who they are and is keeping them stuck in a certain way of being. And this is where we need mindfulness to embody that and then break free of it. Mm-hmm. Well, and I do think that it's about integrating the situation in a way that allows you to recognize that it's something that happened and it's part of my story now, but it doesn't have to control to control me or overwhelm me anymore. And that's where that mindfulness piece can be so powerful. So yeah, I'm glad you brought the Enneagram up because I did my Enneagram today and uh, I had done it before years ago. And I, I want to say that I came out with a different number because this felt this didn't feel familiar to me when it, when I read the results. Um, but what my, I'm curious and what you were saying too about the childhood part is there. So the idea with Enneagram is that we all have a core fear. Is that, mm-hmm. is, would that yes. be accurate? Okay. And then we all have a, a core, like a core fear and a, um, yeah, a core fear and a core desire. The core fear is based off of um, the core desire or the core fear is based off of what our um, quote unquote traumatic experience was in childhood, also known in the Enneagram as the childhood wound. And the core desire is what we go after based off of that programming that feels safe for us. Interesting. Okay. So yeah, if you don't mind, you want to just, let's just jump into the Enneagram and you, you've mentioned that you started out with Myers-Briggs and then you moved into the Enneagram space. So if you want to just, um, explain what the Enneagram is and then, um, and, and maybe we can put a link at the end to people for people to go and, and check their own Enneagram out. Yeah, sure. Okay. So really quick note though, for people, because I want to say that this too, that I mistyped myself um, twice uh, for the Enneagram, and I finally got my test right, my type right, when I had my sister and my mom do it with me. So, and so everyone you, I meet, sorry. I'm sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Can you explain that a little bit more, that mistyping? Yeah, so like uh, when you go, if you're listening to this podcast and you're going to go look up an Enneagram test, 
So you can do the Enneagram test. I'm not going to tell you you can't. I'm not going to limit you. But everyone, when you do the test, we have this thing called the ego. And the ego is how we perceive ourselves. It's not always the ultra confident person walking around thinking they're amazing. It's just how we perceive ourselves. And this means that how we perceive ourselves is not always the same as how people see us and what our core nature is. We all see ourselves uh, likely as someone different than we are. And that is a default nature. We all do it. You have to have a ton of self-awareness to see exactly who you are. And it would be insane to say that we all know ourselves exactly as we are outside of our ego. So what ends up happening is that we do these uh, Enneagram tests, which are trying to get you to answer questions about what your core desire and what your core fear are, core fear is, and it's asking you based on behavior specifically because it's going, it has to figure out, well, like, how does they act? How do they act? We can't look into the deep fears because we oftentimes aren't aware of the fears. So it's asking, are you introverted or extroverted? Are you uh, a happy, loud person or are you quiet? And so it goes through these questions and we answer based on how we see ourselves which is already slightly different than we are. And then we're looking at the behaviors. So we end up typing ourselves and getting results for the type we see ourselves as, not necessarily the one that's our core nature. And so that's what ends up leading to mistyping. So Mm. what we do to combat this is one, I, because I was so, uh, uh, I guess, tired, annoyed with seeing people mistype that I created my own Enneagram cheat sheets so that people can read through them and then pinpoint what their desires are, what their traits are, what their fears are, what they look like when they're healthy and unhealthy to help them understand what it is. And I also dissuade people, you can do the test, but um, you have to really just read each type uh, afterwards if you want to know your type. Um, So Some of the most common mistypes I see are Enneagram 6s, thinking they're Enneagram 8s, which are very similar types, but the core desire is so different. Type 6s tend to see themselves as the challenger, type 8, who wants intensity, when really they are a 6 whose core desire is loyalty. And then there's also a mistype between 4s, 5s, and 9s. Often people who test as 5s tend to be 9s. And people sometimes who can't tell if they're a four or a nine um, might be more of a four. Um, So those are some of the most common mistypes. Oh, and uh, type twos and type nines are really similar. So it can be really hard. So in the end, it's just that quizzes can be unreliable. So if you want to know your Enneagram type, don't, you can do the test, but make sure that you have it correctly because What's going to end up happening is that if we go throughout our life thinking we have a core desire that's not actually our core desire, then we're sidetracking ourselves and we're not living aligned with who we are. So for example, I had tested, I am an Enneagram type nine, which means my core desire is peace and harmony. And you could probably see this from a young age. I didn't because I perceived myself differently. Um, But but Mm -hmm. I'm like the chill person, easy, go with the flow, just wants to... um, lay around and have a good vibes. But I saw myself as the Enneagram five, which is the investigator. So I saw myself as more analytical, logical, blunt, all in my head and all about the facts more than I actually was. And if I had thought now that I'm a type five, I would probably be setting myself up for failure so much because I would think I need way more alone time when in fact I'm a social butterfly. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Well, and I, so I was going to ask now, 
because I, uh, you know, you, you've already had a lot of life experience. Um, but I will venture to say that I've probably had a few, few years more as far as your mom is, um, and your older sister too. But you're saying, even if at your young age, you can do it and you feel like it's going to stay pretty accurate, even as you get older, because those core values and those core desires and fears generally don't change. Is that what you're saying? Yes. I, there is a question always of, does your Enneagram type change? And the answer is, frankly, no, but you can grow past your Enneagram type. So mm. you might be like, I might be an Enneagram nine. And so the stereotype for Enneagram nines is that they're lazy. They're tired. They just want to eat potato chips and sit on the couch <laughs> all day. When And it's not that my core desires changed, but now I run a business. I'm going for, I'm challenging myself every day, even though it's my core fear. I am a social, I'm going after things. I'm super driven. That doesn't mean I changed Enneagram types. My core desire is still harmony. Mm. And so that never changes. It's um, if you feel like your Enneagram type changes, it might just be that you're not, you mistyped in the first place and you weren't ever aware of your core desire. And this is based off of childhood programming. This is, we form a hardwiring Uh, Our brain needs hardwiring in order to survive. And we form this uh, from ages zero to 14. And so once it's in there, it's in there. So you have an Enneagram type and it probably won't change, but that doesn't mean you have to stay limited to its stereotype. Okay. All right. Well, and I would even say, you know, with, um, with the work I've done with early childhood development, that it might even be between the ages of zero and seven. You know, it mm-hmm. might even be earlier because, you know, there's plenty of research and evidence that has shown, you know, there, there's even the old quote, like, give me a child until he's seven and I'll show you the man. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I do believe that there's still growth and new experiences and um, different uh, opportunities for people to learn more about themselves between the ages of seven and 14, because that's a totally different time in the child's life where they're branching out more from the family and they're seeing themselves as part of a larger society. And so those experiences are going to obviously impact you and, um, and, and affect the way that you see yourself and the world. So, um, with your, with your, uh, so do you have a course on Enneagrams or you said you have cheat sheets? So I have like, yeah, a free downloadable cheat sheet. Um, but okay. other than that, I do not have a course teaching the Enneagram, but my whole blog and all of my YouTube videos are teaching about the Enneagram. About the Enneagram. Okay. So the cheat sheets, get, can you give me, okay, I'm trying to, I'm trying to decide, do I tell you my Enneagram or even though it might not Can be I guess accurate? first? Oh, yeah, let's do it. So this is something that I usually do. I mean, if I, okay, so um, this is a theory I haven't posted about yet, but um, each Enneagram type is based off of programming, right? Mm-hmm. And there's more and more studies showing within uh, that our physical body represents our programming. So, I mean, it makes sense. If you live in, uh, like back in, uh, way back, if you had to have more body fat in order to survive cold weather, then you're Mm going to have more body fat. If you're a runner and always having to chase your food, then you're going to be a leaner person. And so Mm -hmm. the same applies to the Enneagram. So I've noticed that there's even 
body type signals that you are each Enneagram type, which I can share later if you'd like. But Mm -hmm. that's what I do when, so I help people figure out their mistyping. And I'm like, everywhere I go, I'm typing people, just not, not trying to say, oh, you're this, you have to be this, (laughs) but trying to figure out like, oh, if they're this, this is what they're like. Well, it's fascinating. It's very fun, you know, to just look at people and try to see if there's this common this common thread that you're noticing as you're interacting with all these different people across the world, especially. And I think that's the unique perspective that you were able to have is that you're not only doing it in a small city, in a town, in the States, you're, you're doing, you know, you're in Bali and in France and you're Mm -hmm. able to see all these different people. So you're, you really do have a unique, uh, a unique perspective. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> so if I was going to see you on camera, I've seen I've seen you a little bit in your Instagram feed, um, but not a ton. Um, so but if I saw you, I think it would help me with my guess. But if I was going to guess your Enneagram based off of a balance of intuition uh, and analysis, I would get my first guess would be that you're an Enneagram six. <laughs> you, is that correct? Yep, that's what I got yes. today. <laughs> Maybe. So it's possible that when you're um, when you did the test the first time, that you tested as an eight is my guess or a one. Well, I, I can't remember. That's why I was like looking through this and I was like, I don't remember six though. I don't, you know, that felt different. Um, and, and it's, God, that's too funny. Am I that, am I that <laughs> easy to read? <laughs> <laughs> so for half of it, um, type sixes are very um, common type, not saying that they're underappreciated. They're amazing. But I have met so many sixes and okay. I can just, um, hearing your voice, each Enneagram type has a speech style. Um, so for mine, you can tell probably with how much I uh, tend to stay to my point, but ramble. Um, the di- type nine's speech style is epic saga. So they talk about one thing and then that leads them down a sidetrack and then they completely forget their point and then they eventually remember what they're saying and then they finish an hour later. And so your speech style I can um, is always um, I can't remember what the word is, but um, I can hear how you um, have a mix of empathy yet um, uh, logic to you. Uh-huh. So it's not um uh-huh. it's not the type 2 where it's just oh my gosh, you're just so amazing and it's not <laughs> the type 1 where it's um well here's the facts, here's everything you need to know. Now here's a precisely everything that's informative. You have that balance to you and there's like a warmth to your voice so I can tell you're six. Well that is really amazing. How about that? Now I feel like I've had a little therapy session. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say when I went to your site and looked up what six meant. And then I love the, um, I'm going to, I'm going to look at it real quick again. So I don't, uh, uh, don't talk about it incorrectly. Okay. So on your, on your making mindfulness it says Enneagram six. And if you're in growth and if you're in stress, and I really, really like the way that you did that, because I think that it's a super important part to help people distinguish between it's almost like what what I mess around in as far as psychology is concerned is like, you know, your shadow self and then you're presenting your presenting self. And so you have to pay attention to what what part of you is are you dealing with or are you um, putting forward? And so when we are in stress, we do act different. And there's parts of us that especially if we're worried or in that in that sympathetic nervous system, our overall goal is to be safe and to, to, to ensure our survival. And each Enneagram has characteristics that come out more 
predominantly when we're in that stress state. And so I like how how you did that with each one. I'm going to go ahead and tell you that I believe that I will be in the Enneagram 6 in the growth state. (laughs) (laughs) You sound like you're in growth. (laughs) I had a lot of years of of opportunities and time to, to dig in and to understand myself and my role in this world and my wishes for myself and others. And so it's very, very neat. I, I like how you did that. So with you, with you being a nine, have you seen that play out fairly consistently as you've interacted with your own family? You've been across the country and the world. Have you noticed that you maybe go in and out of like the stress and growth? Is that sort of natural for everyone? It's a good question. So yes, we naturally, as we're going between our parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous state, by being human beings, just experiencing life that is ever-changing, we are bound to go between stress and growth. We can't expect to just stay in growth forever. Um, And the stress and growth is really such a beautiful part about the Enneagram because mindfulness itself can be so overwhelming. Where do I even start? What is my goal? Um, because mindfulness, while it should be about being aware, it should it helps you find your goal for what you want to be. The Enneagram can be a really helpful tool for that because of the stress and growth. It helps you notice and be aware of when mindful of when you're in, uh, in a stress state, and it helps you be mindful of how you can grow. So for mm-hmm. me specifically as a nine, um, I become a type six in stress, and that doesn't mean I become loyal. I take on the negative traits of a six where I become nervous. I want to be prepared. I can seem anxious and worried. I seem very mistrusting or codependent in clinging on to people. I have noticed my behavior doing this a lot. Um, In the past, there were times where I would become uh, going to my stress and I'd think, oh, I can't betray this person. I need them to be loyal to me. Um, And there's also times where where in our travels, I'd be in a really worried state. There was... um, As a type nine, really quick, um, my core desire is harmony. My core fear is conflict. Mm -hmm. And naturally traveling the world, there is bound to be conflict. My parents would fight uh, about where the car was getting parked and like what to do in a dangerous situation. And I didn't know how to deal with that. So I'd go into my stress and I would become very anxious and I would numb out and I would just be quiet, dead quiet, Mm -hmm. not saying a word. And I would notice that a lot as my stress and knowing my Enneagram when I was 15, helped me so much with realizing that because I didn't even realize that. I didn't even think about uh, that behavior and I didn't because it was such a survival instinct. I didn't even think to reflect on it and change it. I just thought it was what I was supposed to do. It's how I was supposed to cope. And then when I heard about my growth number of the Enneagram 3, it really helped me a lot because uh, as a nine, I need my harmony. We all need our core desire. But my growth as an uh, Enneagram 9 is to step into the 3, which is the achiever, which is all Mm. about not about being, uh, while the 3 is known for being successful, the core root of an Enneagram uh, 3 that we're trying to step into is drive. And that's the word I use in my blog to explain the type 9's growth is drive. Because I had all these things that I liked to do and that were making me feel harmonious, but something was missing for me. My life was almost just too easy and like I could just go wherever I wanted to go and I had no obligations, especially at a young age. When I looked into my Enneagram 3 growth, I realized that I needed something to be driven in. 
And my sister, um, who's older than me, is an Enneagram 3. So she had all the drive that I needed to do in the first mm. place. She took all that up. And so I didn't feel like I had to be driven. But then I started thinking, well, how would it feel to be driven? And so I started um, – I got my first job at 14. I had realized how that had helped me so much because I would get up every morning at 5 a.m. I would open that coffee shop. I would serve drinks and I felt good because I had a drive to my day. And then mm -hmm. after that, I quit that job. I worked for my mom and sister's brand and I was their virtual assistant and I would help them with that and it was a drive. And then eventually I started setting my own goals um, because I have so many hobbies I loved. I love to paint. I love to play guitar. And I was like, I want to share this with the world. So I set the drive. I set the intention. And I started pursuing it. And it felt just so much better in my skin. I felt like I was missing a part of myself. So first mm. we have to learn to embody our Enneagram first because we're in our stress state already. Most of us with the chaos of the world, we're in our stress state. So we have to learn to embody the Enneagram we are, get to that core desire, and then to find true fulfillment, we got to step into that growth. Interesting. No, and I think that's an amazing plat uh, uh, template for all of us to to take and to embody. And, you know, you made me think about what I understand about child development and human development in general, is that all of us are core, at the core, want to be seen, heard, and understood. Um, mm -hmm. And of course, we want to feel safe. So when I hear you talking about that drive, I've noticed over the years, you know, when you think about the infant and then the toddler stage and then the early childhood and then teenage, at every different stage, there's a different sort of person emerging. And by the time they get to be in the early teen years, there's this desire to feel important. And what I find to be a healthy a pursuit of that importance is to plug in somewhere, whether it's in your family or your immediate community or within um, some sort of an area that you're interested in, whether it's some sort of a sport or music or art, where you can give back and you can use your talents and your skills in service of others and in service of a goal, a common goal that you share with someone else. And so I feel like that part of that drive is a is an, is a core need for all of us. So I just wonder though if it is different. It would be so fascinating to me to have like you know a two thousand people and have them all enneagram typed and just see sort of where those similarities are for everybody. Um, have you noticed any of that shakeout through all the people that you've interacted with or the typing that you've seen? Yeah, so a little. I mean, um, we all, you're right, like have the same core desire in the end. The expression of that core desire is slightly different because mm. in the end, we all want to feel loved. We all want to feel a sense of purpose and we all mm -hmm. want to feel a sense of safety. And we all want that balance of safety and purpose and that feeling of love within us. How we go about achieving that and feeling that is different based off of our core desire. But we all in the end, um, like, we almost have a bit of each Enneagram type within us because there's also the tri-types, which is um, uh, a bit of a complicating thing to, complicated thing to explain in such a short period of time. But we basically have a core type and then two types within the two different categories that also play sub roles. Um, mm. And we have our stress and growth numbers, which also teach us different areas. But we do, as human beings, all have similar desires. And that doesn't mean we're all the same type. But 
it just shows human nature. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, especially like how you said, I love how you said about the uh, for teen years being a part of community because uh, being part, I see so much with high school. I, I'm going to just be honest. I think high school is like the <laughs> dumbest thing. Um, and like, that might be an extreme statement, but that's just my opinion. Um, There's a uh, lot, lot that could be done better. Yes. Yes. You were right. <laughs> <laughs> and like the, the part about being around other people your age is important, but other than that, there's so many other ways we could go about it, but there's so many teens who are, have just developed their Enneagram type. They're um, maybe a four. And now once they have that developed, they're trying to figure out how to interact with the world and how to attain that. And what ends up happening is that we're taught so much to go about fulfilling these core desires in the wrong way or that generalized ideas of success are going to be the answer. So like for fours, they think maybe they're told by society that is so success driven that if you become uh, successful, you will be happy when really all that type four wants is to express themselves and be authentic. So, of course, the type four needs to succeed a little. Everyone needs success in their life. But we also have overgeneralized ideas of what happiness is that uh, mm-hmm. based on dominant Enneagram types. Like, you know, a, a, the baby boomer generation told us that, like, we should probably, most of, for the most part, we need just a steady job with steady pay and have mm-hmm. a house that we can retire in. And most of that generation was probably Enneagram sixes because of their parents that they had, they grew up in a, in a with the belief that the world is dangerous and so that they needed loyalty. Mm-hmm. And there's no wrong for that. But now with all these different Enneagram types coming up, the type sixes are all telling us we need this when really it depends on our core desire. Mm-hmm. How are we going to fulfill that? If I'm a nine, I'm going to, my idea of success is way different than my type three sister or is way different than my type six sister. It's all going to be different depending on our type. And while there is some overlap of what we all need for happiness, how we uh, define happiness, how we define our true success is going to be dependent on our Enneagram. Mm, okay. Well, and I find as I'm listening to you explain all of this and the complexities of what it is to be a human being, and especially in relation with others, as a parent, I'm wondering for other parents who are listening, what is the earliest age you think an Enneagram could be done for someone? And I say that because or I ask that because I'm wondering if parents who have children that they don't feel that they can understand, maybe like they, you know, they might be like the Enneagram six and they have, they have this desire for um, maybe order and loyalty and things like that, but their child might be a a totally different Enneagram Mm -hmm. and personality, you know, what's, what's like the earliest you think a parent could maybe do one of these to sort of figure out if they can kind of type their child for, for helping encourage that relationship growth? The most important question yet. So the answer, (laughs) um, because this is a question I get so often because, um, there's people like with young kids who are six and they want to know what Enneagram type they are. And I think it's so important that they do, but it can be hard to type them. So mm-hmm. what age can we usually start seeing kids Enneagram? I think as a general overall, the age of 10, people mm-hmm. usually can tell their Enneagram. Okay. Now there's a little bit of flex room here. And for example, um, 
my brother, I have a younger brother who is an Enneagram 7, the enthusiast. And these people are known for being social, fun-loving, energetic, playful, life of the party. And you could see this from when he was like four years old. So Mm. he had a very early developed uh, Enneagram type. Now, on the other hand, I seemed like an Enneagram 7 up until I was probably 10 years old. I would have been typed as the Enneagram 7. But all of a sudden, when I turned 11 and I was around my friends, I just hit a switch. And I went straight to that Enneagram 9 because I was like, oh, everyone else is louder than me. I should just not rock the boat. So there's a little bit of flex room here. Um, Some kids who have louder personalities, like the Enneagram 8 and the Enneagram 7, are maybe more likely at a younger age. Um, Around 7 to 10, you can tell. You should, uh, at 10, it is very likely that they'll have a concrete Enneagram type. And if they're 10 years old and you can't quite tell, maybe give them two more years, like 12, and they should have a type. But by 10, usually most kids have it developed and sometimes even earlier. And that's where I bring in too, if um, if you have a young child, um, these people who I'm talking to, she has a six-year-old, I believe, and maybe a eight-year-old, um, something around that age, and she can't quite tell their Enneagram types. And I wanted to help her figure them out because it's likely that they have uh, types, but it's also possible that the child with such free reign is still developing their programming. Mm-hmm. And that's where I recommend astrology. Um, and getting a birth chart reading. All you have to do is go online, you put in their name, their date of birth, their date time, and it gives you a whole chart of where all the planets were at their birth, and it explains your personality. And this is something that I've recently started getting back into, and now I religiously preach with the Enneagram because it is so important. And I know for some people on the content of, on the context of religiously, some people are against natal charts, but uh, because of religion and they feel that it might impose upon their religion. But really in the core, in the end, it's just another way of seeing personality typing. It's not necessarily witchcraft or anything, but if you can't find your child's Enneagram type, you can look into their natal chart and you want to figure out how to connect with them more you find their Venus sign and their Venus sign is going to show them how they feel loved. You want to understand what emotions they feel? Their moon sign is going to tell them that. You want to know how they're going to learn best in unschooling? Look at their Mercury because it literally says word for word how they're going to learn best. And it is so different, the combinations, because the plants cannot be in the exact same position that they were ever again. And so each child has a unique birth chart and looking into it can be extremely helpful if you don't, if you can't find their Enneagram type. Okay. Well, and as an unschooling mom and family, our philosophy is pretty much just, you know, follow the child and ensure that people have the resources available and the support available to them to pursue their interest. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we're very, very big advocates of following those rabbit holes. So wherever that takes you. And although I feel that can be used across the board in every family, I find that we have to recognize that our the uniqueness of our kids in our own families and also across other families. So even within the same family, you're going to have two kids growing up the same exact parents in the same home in the same city who are very different. And that's just because they were born that way. They're born different. Everybody's mm-hmm. got their special, unique characteristics. And so I find anything anything that parents can utilize to help them understand the 
the characteristic the characteristics and the differences will ensure that they can support them the best possible way. Because I, like you said, I mean, what my oldest loved early on when he was, um, you know, when he was probably, you know, five, six, seven ish, he wanted to know what we were doing every day. So I had to create a calendar and put it on the refrigerator. He's and probably six two. <laughs> he might be. And as, as I'm looking through everything, I'm thinking, hmm, there's some, there's some similarities here. So he, you know, he enjoyed looking ahead and seeing what was coming up. Um, he didn't like I he didn't like uh, events being sprung on him. He wanted to mentally mm-hmm. prepare for them before he got somewhere. And my daughter, who is four years younger was the life at the party. She was all, no, she didn't know a stranger. You know, it was like, you want to watch my gymnastics move? You know, (laughs) (laughs) probably a seven, (laughs) you know, to her brother's complete like horror, like stop talking to these people. Um, (laughs) And, and then interestingly enough, she became, it it sort of flipped. Um, So yeah, no, I would love to be able to do this with both of them and, and have them, have them figure them out. So for anyone listening, where would they, where was like a good place for them to start if, if they would like to figure out an Enneagram? Obviously your website, but would your website take them to an Enneagram test or? So I don't recommend any Enneagram tests um, on my website okay. because um, my information is more like once you figure out one type that you might be, once you do the test, go here to make sure it's correct. Okay. But um, if you just search free Enneagram test uh, on any browser. You can get um, any test. The one I like, uh, if I was going to do one, is by Eclectic Energies. Okay. Um, And she has stuff about chakras and stuff as well. She has a good Enneagram test that I think serves well. If um, And I recommend if you're going to do a test, have someone who knows you well do it with you so that they can um, almost fact check you on your answers. <laughs> like, no, you're not, you're not like that. Don't, you're not the outgoing one. Be quiet. Get back to your box. Oh, okay. And it might help you find your type. And if you want after to do the test and you want to download my free cheat sheets, if you go to any of my Enneagram blogs, any Enneagram blog at all, um, so if you just go to makingmindfulnessfun.com and open any blog about the Enneagram, you'll see the, um, where it says, it'll say on the blog, download free Enneagram cheat sheets and big words with a picture and you can download them for free and you can look over what each Enneagram type's core desire uh, is, what the signs of stress are, what the signs of growth are, what the wings are. It also includes, um, my favorite part is self-care mm-hmm. for each Enneagram that's type. So if you need know. some self-care ideas. Yeah, that's wonderful. Oh, wow. You have you are just so much fun to talk to. I could probably do this <laughs> another hour. Um, but I know you you can't and I know you have to go get rested because you have spent, how, how long were you on the slopes today? Oh gosh, let's see. It was from, I think it was it was actually one of my shorter days, but uh, this was only from 12 to 5 maybe okay. or 12 to 4. So it was only like four hours, but it was sunny. It was amazing conditions. So I was just flying and falling everywhere. Yeah. And where are you again right now? I'm in Montana right Montana. now. Okay. So as your family, and I didn't ask you this earlier, but I'm definitely curious um, about what your plans are. So are you, do you all create like a plan three to four months in advance or do you kind of just pick a place and everybody sort of agrees and then you show up and do your thing and then go, okay, we're done with this and we move on. 
Yeah, so for the most part, we've traveled really closely knit. And so, and my mom is an Enneagram 8. And so she likes to plan and get the most out of life. And so she'll be planning, right now she's planning out October okay. already. And she's all, she likes to recycle her plans a lot. So she'll be like, okay, so here's option, or here's plan idea number 3022. <laughs> Let's run this play and see if this will work. And so we think a lot about where we want to go. Um, and then, but it's a collective input, um, mainly driven by my sister, my mom and mainly driven by my mom and sister because they've always been the spearhead uh, for our travels. So we'll decide where we're going to go and we have a general idea. We like to stay between a few states. We like to go to South Dakota, Montana, Wyoming, Idaho, Utah, and we'll bounce between those. And we have a general idea of because we're chasing um, rock climbing or surfing or mountain biking, we know when to go based off of conditions. Mm -hmm. So we'll, like we're going... Um, we're actually, we live in a house right now in Montana, but we're moving out at the end of the month and we are going to um, Wyoming again because climbing will be good. We're going back to life in the RV. And then from there, we plan on going back up to Montana to go to Glacier National Park because it'll be good. But that plan might change because we love to change our plans so often. <laughs> but in general, we do have like a collective plan that we try to base around each other and then we go there. And then we tend to, we say that we're going to stay longer than we do because we move way too fast and chase way too much adventure. Mm, well, it's such an inspiring way to live and talk about learning about life and figuring out who you are and what you want to do um, when you become more independent of, of your family. I think, you know, there's, there's no way, no way to get anything like this in a classroom setting. So kudos mm -hmm. to you all for for following your bliss and, and keeping it going for as long as you can. I think it's really, really amazing. And um, I am going to encourage everybody to pay attention to your website and go look at your, so is it your mom and your sister? They also have a site. Is that correct? Or is that your family site where it's um, the no Yeah. So we have, we are a family of entrepreneurs, so we have a ton of websites. So we have uh, makingmindfulnessfun.com is run mainly by me. I do 90% of the work. And then my mom and sister help me with it. They show up for videos. So we have that. But the original business I was talking about earlier is Nomads with a Purpose. Yeah. And that is our original OG travel blog that my mom and sister established in 2015 and has grown so insanely from their hard work. Mm -hmm. um, it's really well done. So it's that beautiful too with all the pictures and the videos. And it's just nice to be able to see firsthand what you've done and where you've gone. And I'm, I'm sure a ton of people have gotten valuable information from it. And you've probably inspired a lot of people to travel to those different places. Oh, I hope so. And yes, thank you for that, because my sister puts a lot of hard work into it to take capture it all. And so mm -hmm. I'm really glad to hear yeah, you can that tell. you thought it was nice. You can tell. <laughs> Before we wrap up, I wonder if there's just anything, anything else you would like to say to people who are interested in pursuing Enneagrams or mindfulness, you know, if there's like a couple of little tips to take home, if you will. Yeah, sure. So for parents out there who are listening to this and either feeling really excited to find out them and their child's Enneagram or for the parents who are listening and feel overwhelmed, maybe even thinking that, dang it, I'm just not enough. I'm not doing enough in parenting. I've failed because my child has a type and I didn't know it. I suck. <laughs> this is not the truth. 
mindfulness, the whole point of learning about Enneagram mindfulness is so that you and your kids are happy. So go start. I recommend you start this journey to learn about the Enneagram, maybe even practice some mindfulness with and take it as it comes. Don't feel that there's a goal or a thing you need to rush to because like I said in the beginning, mindfulness is a way of being. So the goal of learning this is not to add more things to your plate, is to make it so that you have less on your plate and your life is simpler. So start your journey now with your kids. Don't wait to do it. At least just try to find your type and try to find your child's Enneagram and practice mindfulness for it. And if it's wrong, it's wrong. You make mistakes and you're going to make mistakes as you go and it's going to take time to learn and that is okay. Life is about learning. You have time. And by knowing you and your child's Enneagram, it's going to be, I promise you, it's going to be amazing to see the shift in how your life becomes simpler and how their life becomes happier. And remember too that this is not for just you to understand. Whether your child you think is too young, whether they're six or 16, let them understand you, your type, and their own type equally as much as you do. Make it be a learning experience together and see how it can serve you. See how it can help you guys figure out how to find more connection. See how it can make it so that you guys can find and better fulfill your core desire. Well, what do you think? Are you excited about investigating yourself more deeply? Do you look at emotions differently? Do you feel slightly more patient with yourself or even more curious about those in your life you may have written off as hard to understand? What about mindfulness? Did you learn something new? That's what it's all about though, right? Listening and learning and investigating the scripts that unconsciously run our lives. I hope this episode offered some insight. As always, stay curious, stay connected, and stay aware. Until next time.